Welcome to the Fod Eater Fod Path. <laughs> hey everybody, Froth here, Thought Eater Podcast, Thought Eater Blog. Thank you very much for listening. Really appreciate folks checking out my podcasts. Um, it is Sunday, so it's kind of bittersweet podcasting because on the good side, it means that I ran my Night Below campaign last night. Sundays, I talk about that. On the bad side, though, the weekend is so fleeting, so it's Sunday, and I can already see work coming over the horizon. Ugh. Not that I hate my job or anything, but I'd much rather just, well, I'd, I'd rather be gaming, so. Anyway, I'm running the Night Below campaign which is a box set from the second edition AD&D era. Often started, rarely finished. In fact, I imagine if you track down a used copy of this, the first book might show some you know, wear, wear and tear. The second book may be a crease, and then that third book from the campaign, pristine condition. It's just long, groups fall apart, but it also gets more and more complex, and uh, there's just fewer groups that got up to higher levels and I don't know. It's a long campaign. You know, we're almost, I counted through it and I think we're up to like 29 sessions or something like that. And we're basically about to be done with the first book. So now the second and third books are, I guess, a little less sandboxy, so to speak, because you're kind of locked into the plot by that time there still have sandbox elements but i imagine those books will probably go a little bit quicker than the the first one um because it's not establishing everything as much but anyway i digress um doing recap podcasts i know that it's kind of like if you're just now listening starting to listen it's like you came in at the middle of a movie or something what I try to do with these is use talking about my campaign as an excuse to talk about other elements of classic D&D. You know, things that came up, ideas about them, things I could have done better, things I, I did well, and then just mechanics of those games. So I try not to make it too dry where it's like they went here, they went here, they went here, the end. So hopefully this will be of some interest. Um, I think next session... After next session, I may uh, talk about, um, kind of give a whole recap of the, of everything that's happened. But, but for now, the the main thing you need to know is the party is investigating some disappearances and kidnaps in this area called the Heronshire, and they have uncovered uh, various you know, villains, uh, cultists bandits, and humanoids that all are abducting folks, particularly magic users, spellcasters. To what end, no one knows, but all signs seem to port, point downwards as they have, the party has uncovered a network of subterranean caverns and tunnels uh, used by the kidnappers. And at the end of last session, the party was... Well, had found uh, 
well, to, to back up slightly, they they had found a couple of keys throughout the campaign. Two large ivory-handled keys, actually halves of keys, that together make, formed one huge key. And uh, they had finally, in a subterranean passage, found these huge 15-foot-tall double doors reinforced with, with, uh, with bronze that the key fit. Um, looking into the keyhole, they couldn't really see anything. It was dark in there, but they heard the voices of orcs. The dwarf was able to understand the or orcish language and also smelt a foul smell, not unlike that of manure. So uh, the party was tired by that point, so they were going to rest and plot their next move. And right then and there, in the middle of a rest, they um, had some gas. I rolled some random tables, and I'll be talking a lot about random tables this this episode. But uh, were attacked by two ghasts that came rumbling, bumbling, fumbling down the hallway. So last night was great for a number of reasons. One of which was everybody was there, so they had the full seven PCs, um, which was good. I mean, the party, I think they might, might not give themselves that much credit sometimes as far as the strength of the party, but they're, they're, they've got some muscle. Um, uh, and anyway, that is kind of my intro for the session. And next, apologies for the pause there. My dog has a real talent, maybe not talented at... Uh, sitting or laying down certainly not rolling over but finding things she shouldn't be in oh boy she's a master at it um so anyway the party's in the tunnels trying to get a good night's sleep and uh trying to sleep in the tunnels doesn't ever seem to work out for them because they uh it seems like i only really roll random encounters they only hit for me when when they're when they're actually sleeping. So most of the party's asleep. There's a couple people up watching uh, the the dwarf thief Puck and Taryn the ranger. And I roll up a couple, you know, end up rolling up a couple of ghasts. Ghasts are an interesting, nasty creature. Uh, very similar to ghouls, only with the added carrion stench, the foul, reeking stench that surrounds them. Also, you check their intelligence in first edition, and it has that 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 single word that should strike fear into players' hearts. Very intelligence, very so much smarter than the average ghoul, and quite faster too. So they're quick, they reek, they've got that paralyzation thing going on, and they're very very smart. So I decide that the gas are going to definitely go for the sleeping creatures, go for the easy prey. But, uh, and this is something else I wanted to talk about. The, the, I decided that based on the, the speed with which the gas are traveling, and also the reeking stench, you know, they're down in this, it's not like they're out in the breezy air. They're in this, you know, dark, kind of confined tunnel. So I decide that... I'm not even going to check for surprise. The ranger 
can hear them coming, and also they both can smell the, the stink. So I just called for initiative. And one of the things that I think really separates old-school D&D from modern D&D that maybe doesn't even get mentioned that much, and I read a lot of people talking about a lot of different theories about the differences in old-school and, and modern D&D and, and all these kind of things, but one simple mechanic that just maybe more than anything, certainly combat-wise, completely changes the feel between uh, the different editions is the side-based initiative. Because, you know, it's not like everybody's going in this order split up that repeats itself round after round. It's everybody on a side. So that's a lot of firepower each, each round. And if one side gains initiative, say, second, second in a round and then gets it again for the first of a round, you know, they're going, they're making their full range of things twice in a row. And that, so, so that one die roll, that, that, that initiative roll can really swing the combat, you know, significantly. And so that's just something that just doesn't show up. And later editions, it might be an option, you know, buried or provided somewhere in a, in a, in a DMG, but it's not the traditional way that any group plays. Um, and third, fourth or fifth edition, I've never played with anybody using side-based initiative or heard of anyone using it. So, but anyway, the good news for the party is they gain the initiative. So... I, I don't rule that the, the people sleeping have a chance to attack, but they're awake, so it's not going to be automatic hits from the gas when they get to them. So that's a, that's a really good thing, <laughs> because automatic hits from the gas uh, is not good. But anyway, so Taryn, I think, gets a shot, you know, gets a shot or two off with his bow and manages to hit one, and but the gas still go for the prone prone party members that are still waking up. And I just roll randomly to see who they, they attack. And they focus on the two clerics. It's just how it ends up. Um, Father Marcos gets one on him. Father Marcos does a pretty good job fighting him off with some saving throws. Doesn't get paralyzed the first round, although he does get hit. Xandril, on the other hand, the other cleric, uh, fails his save. And the, the ghast is just a clawing and a biting, you know. A clawing and a biting. You know. <laughs> Oh, just on top of him, just having a good old time. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> the but the initiative continues to work well for the party. You know, they get a couple of attacks in a row, and just using some basic good tactics. Um, it's not long before they they take care of the ghasts. So I I check uh, another great random table, you know, a random roll rather, and and first edition is you know checking if, if these creatures are in their lair, you know. And the ghasts weren't. But this comes up a little bit later, really to the party's favor. So the ghasts don't have anything on them. The party was interrupted, you know, mid-sleep. So I'm thinking they're, they're not going to get, you know, they're not going to get their full rest or get their spells back or anything without continuing to rest. This is something else that's weird with, like, 5th edition. You know, you can take a short rest and have a combat encounter and it doesn't interrupt the rest. You're still resting. And I think that makes no sense at all. 
I don't know. Does that make any sense to anybody? Um, I really think a rest, you know, uh, if, if I'm sleeping and then all of a, you know, and then all of a sudden I have to, to fight some undead, uh, that interrupts my sleep, that interrupts my rest. It's not like, oh, well, what'd you do? I took a nap, fought some undead. I'm feeling, you know, I'm feeling rejuvenated. So anyway, they have to go back to sleep, which they do. And then of course I roll another random encounter. It had been, you know, session after session with no random encounters, and another one hits, you know, right away, basically, as they're trying to finish sleeping in this crummy tunnel. Kind of note to self, <clears throat> you know, sleeping in a subterranean tunnel filled with monsters, you know, sucks. You know, there's no door to close. There's no real precaution you can take or anything like that. Other than keeping watch. So it's here that I decide. I'm really trying to pull in the Fiend Folio and Monster Manual 2. And some of these other monster books. With the random rolls. As much as I love the random tables in the DMG. I just. You know. The weeks fly by. You know. How much how much gaming. How much gaming do any of us have left? I don't mean to be morbid but. I want to utilize as many of these books and things as I can. I mean, forget about Feed Folio Monster Manual too. I mean, I've got so many things. Tome of Horrors, a lot of these books that I never use. So I really wanted to at least get into some of these later first edition monsters that people are maybe not used to. Now, the tables in the back of the Fiend Folio are far superior to the Monster Manual too, and I'll get to that a little bit later. But the... the Random tables in the back of the Fiend Folio. Say what you will about the creatures. I think there's some great ones in there. Um, sure, some of them are a little, you know, weird or funny. But a lot of that, if you look at early White Dwarf and everything, it's just a matter of taste, you know. It's how do you like your D&D. If, if you like super serious D&D, you know, you're, you're going to find fewer things in there that you enjoy. But... I may have mentioned it before, actually. There's a great, great podcast on the Fiend Folio that the Dice Are Screaming did. Dice Are Screaming, you can find it here on Anchor or just, you know, all over. Just Google it and uh, look for their Fiend Folio podcast. It's fantastic if you want to hear um, the good, bad, and the ugly on the, the Fiend Folio. But anyway, using those tables, I roll... And I end up with, you know, not a very exotic creature, still one from the Monster Manual, Sturges. But the Sturges really, I really liked the idea of them kind of just flying through the tunnel at fit. So, well, I didn't end up with anything unusual. I like a good old-fashioned Sturge. I think that's one that, even though they're, they're not super powerful, like the creatures, I mean, uh, players can't stand them because you don't want to get it on you and have it you know, just automatically sucking your blood. No one likes a dang sturge. So, I think it was like 13 sturges I rolled, and, you know, the party pretty much wiped them out. They did get on a few, you know, they, they hit a few times and got on the party members. I think Cyril the Assassin had one that got to pump on them a few times, you know, like sucking that blood out of a big old straw. But... It was not a remarkable encounter or anything. There were no danger of death or anything. Um, I mean, the party's pretty strong at this point. Like I say, they might 
not give themselves enough credit because they're, they're a pretty formidable force when they're all seven deep together. Um, but anyway, the interesting thing about the sturge encounter is I decided to check and see if, if maybe this was the sturge lair, and it was. So then I started rolling on the the treasure tables. So I really like rolling on tables in general, but I, I like the, the random treasure tables too. I like unpredictability, but also, you know, as far as XP, I like XP for treasure and killing monsters. I, I think that's a mistake of later editions doing this whole milestone, all that kind of stuff. I, I don't respond well to that. that. I don't like it because it minimizes the value of the treasure you find. Um, when you give XP for treasure, it allows for these, you know, some sessions, very little XP, but then sometimes the mother load. Those mother load sessions, I think, are great for, for players. It's exciting. You know, you can go have a huge advance in your character just based on the random roll of the dice. And it's unpredictable for the GM. It's The, the game's kind of telling the story. The game's giving it to you. I don't know if I'm doing a good job of explaining that, but the, what happened for the party is they had no treasure other than, boom, I hit on the jewelry. And, boom, six pieces of jewelry. So I decide that the Sturges and their nests and everything have just kind of woven in some jewelry and stuff they've found. So there's like, you know, like a bracelet here and a necklace there that's just kind of woven into the fibers and, you know, the other trash and garbage they're using. Um, and so I get into the DMG and this, some of this jewelry is worth a lot and all my rolls are high. So I'm looking at, you know... Five to ten thousand dollar pieces, one thousand to five thousand dollar pieces, not dollar but gold pieces, you know what I mean? And I roll really good for them. So they end up with with just thirteen sturges, you know, of kind of just a nothing random encounter, you know, nothing special. But they end up raking in like twenty thousand gold pieces worth of jewelry out of this this sturge nest. And broken up amongst them, that's probably going to be the highest XP total for a session from the entire year we've been running the campaign. We've run it a little over a year, but like I said, I think it's only about 30 sessions. We've had some breaks and times we couldn't run it. But but so, yeah, so that's, that's one of the things the random tables gives you, you know. No one would have thought... Going into that encounter with a you know some sturges that it was going to end up being this massive XP and gold haul, and I wouldn't have either. And so that's that's one of the things I like. I like that unpredictability. I like that just this random sturge encounter can turn into the biggest payday of this entire campaign. <laughs> so, so I think next session will definitely. I mean, I know for a fact we'll have some leveling up. I think. Um, Xanril the Cleric will be level 5. I know that for a fact. Cass, I know for a fact, will go from level 3 to 4 with a fighter. And there's a chance Ariel... Ariel might still be short because the the XP for Illusionist is, 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 works out differently. You know, it takes a little bit more. But um, anyway, 
So that's one of the things I wanted to mention. I, I like, you know, chance of percentage chance of being encountered in lair. I like the random treasure because I'm playing one of these campaigns and every, everything's kind of mapped out as far as, you know, what treasure is where, and that's fine too. Um, but I also like this just random shots at, you know, huge caches of, of treasure that, um, are completely disproportionate to the challenge faced, I guess. And then and, and vice versa, you have these, you know, incredibly difficult encounters and then the treasure ends up nil, you know what I mean? So the party finally, uh, you know, they finally managed to, to, to complete their sleep, but it was a crappy night's sleep. So I'm kind of like, I think I said that maybe some, some or all of their spells didn't, they didn't get them back. You know, you have two encounters in the night sleeping on rocks. You're not going to feel rejuvenated and well rested or anything. And the party surprised me here. I figured for sure we were going to have the onslaught on the orc lair here. Uh, which incidentally is kind of like the last thing of the, the first book. So I thought we'd be, you know, wrapping up the first book, ready to get into kind of uncharted territory where a lot of groups don't even get to the second book. Uh, I know this anecdotally from reading around different people that have run the night below, but you got a lot of people that know something about the first book, a few that know something about the second. And I think only like, you know, Carl Sargent, I think wrote this Carl Sargent's the only one that knows anything about book three. <laughs> Um, let me double check to make sure I'm speaking correct. Yeah, Carl Sargent. I knew that was right, but sometimes my brain isn't working, working correctly in the morning. But anyway, the party surprised me because I thought they would go straight for the, you know, the huge double doors, but I don't think they were trusting their abilities, you know, or, um, well, the tunnel that passes by these huge doors also continued going in, into an area that, that they hadn't in, explored before. So they decided to follow that tunnel to see where it went before they messed with the door. So it eventually comes out um, in the woods, not far far from this broken spire keep, this old uh, abandoned keep um, that some of the kidnappers that they encountered earlier in the campaign were hiding out in. So that kind of, it kind of, you know, the tunnel leads up to where it's like a concealed entryway in the forest. Um, they decide to take the shortest path out of the forest and then double back to get their horses at Kuiper's farm. And this is all probably 15 miles away, uh, some, somewhere in that, in that range. But by the time they get to the edge of the forest, it's night, so they have to rest. Uh, take, you know, they have to camp. So they camp out, and this time, mercifully, they don't encounter anything. Although it's raining all night, so they're all moldy and mildewed and miserable, and it's getting colder and colder. It's actually this was very right towards the end of. I set this in Greyhawk ostensibly. There's not a ton of Greyhawk flavor in there, but because it's all set in this one specific area, but I use the Greyhawk calendar and everything else, so it's. Right at the end of Ready Reet, kind of uh, the last month of fall, getting ready to move into Sun's Ebb, which is the first kind of month of winter. So it's a cold, rainy, miserable night camping. And then the party gets up. They travel to Kuiper's Farm. They don't encounter anything on the way. 
get their horses and everything from Kuiper's, get a hot meal, get some kind of fresh clothes, um, sit by the fire. I believe they they thought about spending the night there because they had spent most of the, the that ne next day traveling to get there uh, by foot, um, but then they decided to just ride on through the night to Milburn, so they do that. So they ride back in the little town at Milburn, um, go to the tavern, have a meal, and they're kind of treated like celebrities at this point, even though they're celebrities that know, know Meat Shield in their right mind wants to uh, accompany. You know, everybody that's gone to try to help them pretty much has died, so nobody wants to go with them, but they'll, they'll buy them drinks, you know? So, um, especially with them having freed a captive from the Great Rockdale, that's a story from a previous session, but anyway, they had freed a, a captive that has made it back to his wife and, and family. Um, people are buying them drinks. Um, but there's an over, there's a, there's a sense of fear, you know, underneath the, underneath everything. Um, they're kind of stirred up about the threat of humanoids and orcs and everything. And, uh, with all the kidnappings and the deaths, they're, re they're, um, obviously a bit on edge, uh, kind of trying to drown it, drown out the, the fear and anxiety with some alcohol. Kind of like people do in real life. Um, amongst other things, they, they, uh, the, Father Marcos, the cleric, is invited by a young couple to officiate their wedding the next day because the only priest in town, Sam Hayes, is still missing, having been abducted. So Father Marcos agrees to do that. Cass, the fighter, has, she has entirely too much to drink. And, uh, so there was a, some, some humor there. So uh, when we come back from this quick break, I'll tell you guys about the wedding. And then later in this episode, one of the worst monsters that Gygax ever invented. And now a word from our sponsors. All right, so we're back. So yeah, the next morning the party gets up and Father Marcos is going to officiate this wedding. So I believe I just named the, the, the kids getting married as Jim and Wilma. And, um, again, Sam Hayes, the cleric has been abducted. So there, there's no one to, to do these kind of things. So the whole little village turns out for the wedding. And, you know, last week I had mentioned I was proud of the party because there was a funeral and, and they actually handled it with dignity and kind of a seriousness and, um, it was, which was completely uncharacteristic, you know, my parties, you know, you see the meme that's like, your D and D game starts off like this and it's like the fellowship of the ring or something that ends up like this. And it's like a picture from Monty Python and the Holy grail. My campaigns just start off with Monty Python and the Holy grail. There is no pretense of, 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 of seriousness or too much of it. And I was thinking about, I had, I read an, a review, I believe it was Bryce Lynch at 10 foot pole that was talking about, uh, one of the Hydra Cooperative Adventures. Um, I think it was Operation Unfathomable, but I can't be sure. But the point of the review was, you know, they're, they're complaining a little bit. Um, and if this wasn't on 10-foot pole, I, I apologize. But 
they're complaining a bit about the tone of the the campaign or whatever that because you know sometimes the hydro cooperative will have some gonzo or some silly elements in their their products and the the point of the complaint was something to the effect of you know the, the, the world they prefer the world to be like the straight man to the to the party you know because the party's going to bring all the silliness and zaniness and that kind of thing themselves uh, so the the world is like the abbot for the the players costello you know which i think is overall kind of true in my games although i don't mind the occasional weird or gonzo element and then really even if you're playing vanilla D D, a lot of the creatures and things like that you know it's not like the whole tone is going to be serious maybe some games but not not D D. there's already a kind of a weird sometimes humorous sometimes zany element just built into it but for the most part that is how it ends up uh, in my games the you know the world is fairly sober place you know and uh, uh you know despite the the myriad of wild crazy critters running around but but then the party brings that zaniness to it so last week at the funeral uh, i was shocked <laughs> frankly shocked <laughs> that, that they that they had a somber tone uh even though uh cyril the assassin did try to hit on girls at the at the at the wedding, I mean, at the funeral, so I guess there was that. But here at the wedding, you know, Father Marco says a few words, and but meanwhile, cast the fighters completely hungover, you know, belching loudly and, and puking. Uh, Zanroll, the cleric, the kind of trickster cleric of Zagig, you know, with terrible puns, and Zanroll's doing a really good job playing a cleric of Zagig. So he has fashioned his own whoopee cushion, maybe out of a a cow's bladder or something, you know, <laughs> a primitive medieval whoopee cushion <laughs> and, uh, has fashioned his own rubber chicken, maybe the first rubber chicken of all time, uh, depending on how you look at your worlds. And, um, had even put a little bow tie on the rubber chicken for the wedding. So it was decked out to the nines. Um, so I end up just making this, you know, it's just a backwater town. So when the when Marcos asks the the bride and groom if they want to say a word, it's like Jim says to Wilma, you know, and I'll love you forever, and you're you're my favorite cousin I've ever had, you know. <laughs> I think Cass remarks like, "Oh, this reminds me of growing up in Indiana," <laughs> which, no offense to anybody from Indiana, I cannot talk. I live in Georgia. You can hear my southern drawl going. Uh, and I, I grew up in Alabama and Georgia, so we are, uh, you know, we're, we we brought you deliverance, you know what I mean? So don't uh, don't get me wrong. It was just funny. And I think, you know, I, was, I don't know exactly if she was born in Indiana or whatever, but she was could speak from experience. So don't get mad at me. But anyway... So that it reminded her of Indiana, which I thought was funny. But eventually, the, the you know the we get done with the wedding and everything, and the party kind of goes shopping. And it's at this point too. This is something else I wanted to mention. You know, I'm a kind of a stickler on the bookkeeping on shopping when the party has no money and they're just starting. And even then, I did a podcast, one of my first few podcasts, 
it's really wild that, you know, I've only been podcasting for like four months, but I look back at my early ones. Oh, I don't know how anybody can, I don't even want to dare listen. I like to just dive into things and, and, and learn on the fly and you get better as you go. Hopefully certainly get more experienced, but I don't know if I get better, but some of those early ones are rough cause I didn't, I hadn't really figured out a pattern or, or what I wanted to do. But, and when I was talking about starting equipment for groups and I just don't like doing shopping scenes and games. Usually uh, it kind of just drags, throws the whole thing off and it's just, it, messes with the rhythm of it and in this case the party's got a lot of money although they do get some drained every time they level up to try to you know make them say okay now that's 10 copper or that's three silver at this point it's ridiculous and that's one of the things i like about charging them a little bit on leveling up um a la the first edition dmg i don't hit them as for the full price but you can consider that some of that money to be going towards basic upkeep, like, you know, buy some torches or, or whatever. So, um, you know, or get some dry clothes and things like that. Uh, you know, so I just said, you know, if it's in the basic handbook and it's reasonable that they can carry it, um, they're going to be able to, you know, just, you know, you don't have to get on your sheet and cross off copper pieces. All right, I got to take this away from my dog real quick. One second. Sheesh, sorry about that. I was hearing this weird chewing, so I knew it was something she wasn't supposed to be chewing, and I was right. So some kind of plastic ball thing she had found. Who knows where? Um, I tossed the evidence. Maybe it was my daughter's. I tossed the evidence that she couldn't see the, the wreckage and carnage. But like I was saying, I'll generally hand wave these little small purchases at this point. There's no no point in tracking it. But the party has exhausted all their possibilities of, of henchmen and, and everything at this point. Everyone just knows that certain death, you know, death follows them wherever they go. And they're right. And uh, especially after hearing the tales of torture from the recently freed, freed uh, captive that had followed them. Uh, you know, nobody wants that. <clears throat> and they even, there's no dogs left at the kennel either. They've gone through all the war dogs, you know, it's them by themselves at this point. Um, so they decide to head back out. They're going to go the same way they came back to town. They're going to drop off the horses at Kuiper's walk back around to enter in through the, the last uh, outlet of the passage. And the hope is that uh, we, we would get them to back to the, you know, the orc doors is where they're heading, get them back to those doors and stop the session there. And then that next session, someone will level up. And so I'm anticipating next session, like in all likelihood, is going to be the big onslaught on this orc lair. <clears throat> So they travel back without incident. Uh, it takes them a, a full day, and then um, by the time you know, so by the time they get to the edge of the woods, it's night, and it's here that a roll an encounter as they're setting up, you know, getting ready to maybe just actually no, they spent the night and they didn't encounter anything. So the next morning they get up to head to the, the tunnel, head into the woods, 
And it's here that I roll a random encounter while, while they're traveling during the morning. And it is here where they encounter what has to be one of the worst monsters of all time. One of the least inspired monsters. Maybe not the worst monster of all time, but certainly one of the laziest Gygax monsters of all time. Now, Gygax is infamous for utilizing ghost riders without giving them credit. Um, or maybe, you know, not enough credit. So I can't be for sure this was Gygax, but it's in the Monster Manual too, and uh, I don't know. I'm going to blame Gygax, okay? He put his name on the book. <laughs> so, as I was talking about earlier, I wanted to utilize these other books. So, the reason I'd gone to the Fiend Folio first instead of the Monster Manual 2 is because the Monster Manual 2 has crappy random tables. Sure, it starts off okay. Kind of, it does have some numbered encounters, uh, encounter tables, but they're, they're paltry. You know, they're like D20 tables when you've got the whole of the Monster Manual, Fiend Folio, Monster Manual 2 to pull from. And by the time it gets to the full list of creatures, it doesn't even number them. It just lists them by frequency and doesn't even number them. So it even adds insult to injury uh, with this whole little blurb about how to set up your own encounter tables and then doesn't do it for you. And it could have been the greatest collection of first edition random tables of any the monster books. Uh, but it, it is not. So you gotta kind of, if you want to use them, you have to count them out or, or write in the books. And I haven't bothered to, to write in the book yet. I probably will have to. And you know, one of the reasons for that is that they, they even just list the monsters. It's you know, so they're listed alphabetically. Um, you know, not a lot of care just done to it. So I quickly count through. You know, based on the 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 overall climate of the area and and how you know what kind of rarity um you know i said it would probably be kind of a rare creature because the, the, these woods are kind of untouched and they're not um whatever civilized or anything like that so you know i'm counting through real quick on the fly and of course it's not any kind of even number it's like 79 but since i roll on we play this campaign on roll 20. One of the great things there is I can just, you know, plug in any dice roll. So if I want to roll a D 113, I can do it. No, no problem. So I love that about it. But, and I saw a roll and, and I get excited cause it's not a name I know in the monster manual too. So I'm like, okay, this will be great. We'll have something that the party's never seen before or likely hasn't seen before some kind of weird encounter. And what I roll is the Vulchling, okay? Vulchling. Not the Vulture, the Vulchling. I'm like, what the heck's a Vulchling? Open it up. And this is just, it's pitiful, y'all. It's, it's a, well, let me read it to you. It is described as a race of bird-like creatures. Now, I don't know what bird-like means in this context because it, it's a bird, I mean, it has wings. It's basically a vulture. It's almost identical to a vulture, as a matter of fact. So, I mean, it's a bird. What is bird like? I don't know. It says it has the appearance of a vulture with vaguely human features. Now, there's an image of it here. I'll put it on the blog, too. 
And I'm not seeing the vaguely human. One of my players tried to tell me it's the neck. Now, the neck is longer, I guess, than a vulture, but it's not vaguely human. I don't know. Vaguely human. It's a bird-like. Don't get it. Vaguely human. Don't see it. Now, it would have been one thing if there was a vulture in the first edition of Monster Manual, and so it's years later, they're doing different spins on things, so then the vulturing comes out. Maybe it'd be maybe more forgivable a little bit. But no, it's literally right next to a vulture. I mean, there's a vulture in the Monster Manual 2 and the Vulchling. So it's just lazy. And picture Gygax like smoking a cigar like, oh, they'll eat this crap up. Or, All right, you know, I need another V, V monster. Vulture, Vulchling. Yeah, okay, yeah. Give it a neck, you know. <laughs> so the big... The big difference between Volchlings and Vultures is that, you know, they give this a chaotic evil alignment and they, they say that it might hang around some demons or something. I don't know. But it's still just a one-hit dice creature that... I guess they also make it to where they can have treasure. But overall, I mean, it's, it's a lame monster. And I was joking about how I'd do this podcast and then... Someone would say, oh, no, Froth. Uh, actually, you know, I built my whole campaign around Vulchlings. <laughs> For, you know, my favorite monster of all time is a Vulchling. <laughs> Maybe there's someone out there like that. But no, I, I don't think so. The Vulchling. It's got to be one of the least inspired monsters of all time. Got to be. So anyway, they, they fight with these bird-like creatures with vaguely human features. Uh, the Vulchings don't do much. Like I say, they're one-hit dice. But uh, one of them gets a hold of Xanril pretty good and, and, and crits and gives them a you know couple of talons and a, and a beak. But the, the, the best thing about it is, you know, it allowed for some humor as we all kind of discussed the, uh, the, the Vulchling and the merits of the Vulchling. So... You know, sometimes the random tables are going to bring you amazing things like more treasure than you could ever dreamed of from, from Sturges. Sometimes you're just trying to give them some monsters that they've never seen before and you end up uncovering one of the laziest Gygax monsters of all time, the Vulchling. The Vulchling. I'll, you know, as bad as the Vulchling is, I'll, I'm sure I'll remember that moment forever. Like, ugh, yeah, the Vulchling lame anyway so after they finished fighting off these vulchlings um that we had we had played for three hours so that's where we're gonna leave it i'm so i also mentioned i'm glad it wasn't a cliffhanger like you're attacked by vulchlings you know we'll start next time with the vulchlings because it would have been very anticlimactic climactic um but yeah, so next session they should be, you know, making their way through the forest, back into the tunnel, to the huge double doors leading to the orc lair, and I think we're gonna have just a knockdown, drag out, major battle. So that should be fun listening for next time. Anyway, I know I've rambled on long enough about this. I uh, hope you enjoyed listening, though. Uh, like I said before, I appreciate listeners, appreciate people checking out my different shows. So uh, next thing you'll hear from me is. Uh, Top three Tuesdays. Did get some more call-ins on that, so I'll be answering some voicemails and 
trying out the top three of some folks that called in. Um, so you can look forward to that. If you want to message me, it's frothsoft, frothsof at gmail.com. Um, yeah, oh, always want to thank my patrons on Patreon. Appreciate y'all very much. Patreon.com forward slash thought eater. Only a buck a month. Uh, check out the blog at frothsoftdnd.blogspot.com. Logan, take us out of here. Y'all have a great rest of the weekend. Sickly platypus, a psychic grenade Zeroing in on your mental trade Gonna help you escape from the grind Thought eater gonna blow your mind